Hello, listeners. Bluebeard, Kurt Vonnegut, Chapter 4. Let's do it. I have been in the art business, the picture business, so long now that I can daydream about the past as though it were a vista through a series of galleries like the Louvre, perhaps home of the Mona Lisa, whose smile has now outlived by three decades the post-war miracle of sateen Doralux. The pictures in what must be the final gallery of my life are real. I can touch them if I like, or, following the recommendations of the widow Berman, a.k.a. Polly Madison, sell them to the highest bidder, or in some other way, in her thoughtful words, get them the hell out of here. In the imaginary galleries in the distance are my own abstract expressionist paintings, miraculously resurrected by the great critic for Judgment Day, and then pictures by Europeans which I bought for a few dollars, or chocolate bars, or nylon stockings when a soldier, and then advertisements of the sort I had been laying out and illustrating before I joined the army, at about the time news of my father's death in the Bijou Theater in San Ignacio came. Still farther away are the magazine illustrations of Dan Gregory, whose apprentice I was from the time I was 17 until he threw me out. I was one month short of being 20 when he threw me out. Beyond the Dan Gregory gallery are unframed works I made in my boyhood. I was the only artist of any age or sort ever to inhabit San Ignacio. The gallery at the farthest removed from me in my dotage, though just inside the door I entered in 1916, is devoted to a photograph, not a painting. Its subject is a noble white house with a long, winding driveway and Port Cochere, supposedly in San Ignacio, which Vartan Mamagonian in Cairo told me my parents they were buying with most of mother's jewelry. That picture, along with a bogus deed, crawling with signatures and spattered with sealing wax, was in my parents' bedside table for many years, in the tiny apartment over father's shoe repair shop. I assumed that he had thrown them out with so many other mementos after mother died, but as I was about to board a railroad train in 1933 to seek my fortune in New York City during the depths of the Great Depression, father made me a present of the photograph. If you happen to come across this house, he said in Armenian, let me know where it is. Wherever it is, it belongs to me. I don't own that picture anymore. Coming back to New York City after having been one of three persons at Father's funeral in San Ignacio, which I hadn't seen for five years, I ripped the photograph to bits. I did that because I was angry at my dead father. It was my conclusion that he had cheated himself and my mother a lot worse than they had been cheated by Vartan Mamagonian. It wasn't Mamagonian who made my parents stay in San Ignacio instead of moving to Fresno, say, where there really was an Armenian colony whose members supported each other and kept the old language and customs and religion alive, and at the same time became happier and happier to be in California. Father could have become a beloved teacher again. Oh no, it wasn't Mamagonian who tricked him into being the unhappiest and loneliest of the world's cobblers. Armenians have done brilliantly in this country during the short time they've been here. My neighbor to the west is F. Donald Kasabian, Executive Vice President of Metropolitan Life. So that right here in exclusive East Hampton, and right on the beach too, we have two Armenians side by side. 
What used to be J.P. Morgan's estate in Southampton is now the property of Kavork Havanesian, who owned 20th Century Fox until he sold it last week. And Armenians haven't succeeded only in business here. The great writer William Saroyan was an Armenian, and so is Dr. George Mintushian, the new president of the University of Chicago. Dr. Mintushian, now Shakespeare scholar, something my father could have been. And Sir Berman has just come into the room and read what is in my typewriter, which is ten of the lines above. She is gone again. She said again that my father obviously suffered from survivor's syndrome. Everybody who is alive is a survivor, and everybody who is dead isn't, I said. So everybody alive must have the survivor's syndrome. It's that or death. I'm so damn sick of people telling me proudly that they are survivors. Nine times out of ten, it's a cannibal or a billionaire. You still haven't forgiven your father for being what he had to be, she said. That's why you're yelling now. I wasn't yelling, I said. They can hear you in Portugal, she said. That's where you'll wind up if you put out to sea from my private beach and sail due east, as she had figured out from the globe in the library. You wind up in Oporto, Portugal. You envy your father's ordeal, she said. I had an ordeal of my own, I said. In case you haven't noticed, I'm a one-eyed man. You told me yourself there was almost no pain and that it healed right away, she said, which was true. I don't remember being hit, but only the approach of a white German tank and German soldiers all in white across a snow-covered meadow in Luxembourg. I was unconscious when I was taken prisoner and was kept that way by morphine until I woke up in a German military hospital in a church across the border in Germany. She was right. I had to endure no more pain in the war than a civilian experiences in a dentist's chair. The wound healed so quickly that I was soon shipped off to a camp as just another unremarkable prisoner. Still, I insisted that I was as entitled to a survivor syndrome as my father, so she asked me two questions. The first one was this. Do you believe sometimes that you are a good person in a world where almost all of the other good people are dead? No, I said. Do you sometimes believe that you must be wicked? since all the good people are dead, and that the only way to clear your name is to be dead too? No, I said. You may be entitled to the survivor syndrome, but you didn't get it, she said. Would you like to try for, sur- Would you like to try for tuberculosis instead? How do you know so much about the survivor syndrome, I asked her. This wasn't a boorish question to ask her, since she had told me during our first meeting on the beach that she and her husband, although both Jewish, had had no knowledge of relatives they might have had in Europe and who might have been killed during the Holocaust. They were both from families which had been in the United States for several generations and which had lost all contact with European relatives. I wrote a book about it, she said. Rather, I wrote about people like you, children of a parent who had survived some sort of mass killing. It's called The Underground. Needless to say, I have not read that, or any of the Polly Madison books, although they seem now that I have started looking around for them, as available as packs of chewing gum. Not that I would need to leave the house to get a copy of The Underground or any other Polly Madison book, Mrs. Berman informs me. The cook's daughter, Celeste, has every one of them. Mrs. Berman, the most ferocious enemy of privacy I ever knew, has also discovered that Celeste, although only 15, already takes birth control pills. The formidable widow Berman told me the plot of The Underground, which is this. Three girls, one black, one Jewish, and one Japanese, feel drawn together and separate from the rest of their classmates for reasons they can't explain. They form a little club, which they call, again, for reasons they can't explain, the underground. 
But then it turns out that all three have a parent or grandparent who has survived some man-made catastrophe and who, without meaning to, passed on to them the idea that the wicked were the living and that the good were dead. The black is descended from a survivor of the massacre of Ibos in Nigeria. The Japanese is a descendant of a survivor of the atom, bomb, atom bombing of Nagasaki. The Jew is a descendant of a survivor of the Nazi Holocaust. The Underground is a wonderful title for a book like that, I said. You bet it is, she said. I'm very proud of my titles. She really thinks that she is the cat's pajamas and that everybody else is dumb, dumb, dumb. She said that the painter should hire writers to name their pictures for them. The names of the pictures on my walls here are Opus 9 and Blue and Burnt Orange and so on. My own most famous painting, which no longer exists, and which was 64 feet long and 8 feet high, and used to grace the entrance lobby of the Gefco headquarters on Park Avenue, was simply called Windsor Blue Number no. 17. Windsor Blue was a shade of sateen Doralux straight from the can. The titles are meant to be uncommunicative, I said. What's the point of being alive, she said, if you're not going to communicate? She still has no respect for my art collection, although during the five weeks she has now been in residence, she has seen immensely respectable people from as far away as Switzerland and Japan worship some of them as though the pictures were gods almost. She was here when I sold a Rothko right off the wall to a man from the Getty Museum for a million and a half dollars. What she said about that was this. Good riddance of bad rubbish. It was rotting your brain because it was about absolutely nothing. Now give the rest of them the old heave-ho. She asked me just now while we were talking about the survivor syndrome if my father wanted to see the Turks punished for what they had done to the Armenians. I asked him the same thing when I was about eight years old, I guess, and thinking maybe life would be spicier if we wanted revenge of some kind, I said. Father put down his roots there in his little shop, put down his tools there in his little shop, and he stared out the window. I went on, and I looked out the window too. There were a couple of Luma Indian men out there, I remember. The Luma reservation was only five miles away, and sometimes people passing through town would mistake me for a Luma boy. I liked that a lot. At the time, I thought it certainly beat being an Armenian. Father finally answered my question this way. All I want from the Turks is an admission that their country is an uglier and even more joyless place now that we are gone. I went for a manly tramp around my boundaries after lunch today and encountered my neighbor to the north on our mutual border, which runs about 20 feet north of my potato barn. His name is John Karpinski. He is a native. He is a potato farmer like his father, although his fields must now be worth about $80,000 an acre, since the second-story windows of houses built on them would have an ocean view. Three generations of our Karpinskis have been raised on all that property, so that to them, in an Armenian manner of speaking, it is their own sacred ancestral bit of ground at the foot of Mount Ararat. Karpinski is a huge man, almost always in bib overalls, and everybody calls him Big John. Big John is a wounded war veteran like Paul Schlesinger and me, but he is younger than us, so his war was a different war. His war was the Korean War. And then his only son, Little John, was killed by a landmine in the Vietnam War. One war to a customer. We are going to stop there, friends. We're in the middle of the lengthiest chapter so far in our reading of Blue Beard by Kurt Vonnegut. I hope this finds all of you well, and many, many apologies for the sporadic nature 
of these readings. I will continue to try to do better under these unforgiving circumstances that we are all experiencing during the shelter-in-place injunction. Signing off, this is the management. I will see you all soon.